0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative
1: projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge.
0: Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings
1: as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantAge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here.
0: The international presence of the permaculture movement has always been an inspiration to me. And in today's interview, I had the pleasure of talking with Nelson Lebo of the Eco School in Whanganui in the North Island of New Zealand. Now, Nelson first reached out to me after hearing about some of our similar experiences on this podcast. And I became fascinated with the development of his own farm in the unique factors in his area of New Zealand. Now in this interview, Nelson speaks in depth about why he prefers to work with severely degraded land rather than pristine ecosystems, and the challenges of permaculture triage on a limited budget. From there, we explore how he approaches the building and development of systems and models that are replicable and scalable, and that are also economically viable. We also talk about adapting to severe weather, the time dimension within design, and the urgency of farming as if our children's lives depend on it. Now, this is a remarkably broad and far-reaching interview. Bear with me for the couple of minutes of rough audio as Nelson was recording his side from a local public library, but grab your notebooks and I'll now turn things over to Nelson Lebo. Hey, Nelson, thanks so much for getting on the podcast today. I know the, the time difference is really large. You're down in New Zealand, right?
1: Yeah, that's right, but um, I'm an early riser, so I've probably been already up for six hours um, and it's only 10 a.m.,
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no going, uh, there's no getting started late in the day when you've got a farm to look after. I cert- certainly can relate. But hey, so I've got a ton of things I'd love to talk to you about. So what do you say we just jump right into the questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great.
0: Marvelous. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you got started in permaculture farming and how you ended up in New Zealand?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, this could probably be a multi... Um, a multi-episode podcast in and of itself, so I'll keep it really short. Um, In 1986, when I went to university and my first day in university, I took a course called Environmental Studies 101 and just blew my mind. I could not believe the, the extent of the environmental problems in the world. And naively at the time, I thought, oh, well, all we need to do is educate everyone about these problems. And as soon as everyone is aware of them, then they'll quickly be solved. Um, Well, here we are, you know, 32 years later, and arguably by every measure, the world is in a worse condition. Um, So I, I mean, along with trying to convince others to come along, i Decided fairly early on that having been through what, you know, um, a lot of years of schooling, I came out with a lot of knowledge, quote unquote, but no skills at all. And in my early adult life, I wanted to learn to grow food. And then later on, that turned into learning to build and renovate um, homes as well. And so all the learning I've done is essentially been informal and self-taught. I don't have a degree in agriculture horticulture or in building. Um, but I'm just a voracious learner. Like most permaculturists are, I'll take every opportunity to learn. Um, and I'm also an educator and so a lot of what we do is we try, essentially what we try to do is best practice land management and best practice education. Um, And we provide it all at very affordable prices for learners who want to come.
0: Marvelous. So tell me how you relocated to New Zealand and started putting all of this informal education into practice and how it's developed into what it is today.
1: Cool. Yeah. I forgot. I forgot about that part of the question. Now, um, I was a high school science teacher for 14 years. And I also had a, um, I bought a, a rundown farm and I was, was developing that into a permaculture property simultaneously. So basically I was working year round, you know, never had a day off, um, essentially. But in, um, 2007. Let me get this straight. 2006, I went to Ladakh, India, and had a really great experience up in Ladakh at a um, school called Sekmal, which is pretty famous um, um, with uh, sort of permaculture in the Himalayas really inspiring. And then I got back and I was working on my farm, herniated a disc in my back, really bad injury. Um, super painful, um, then, uh, um, that led to sort of thinking, okay, well, what do I want to do with my rest of my life? My teaching career was basically, I hit a glass ceiling teaching in a school and they kept, um, talking about a commitment to the environment, but never actually really doing anything substantial, lots of tokenism. So between an injured back and a glass ceiling where I was teaching, um, and experience doing organic uh, market gardening for about seven or eight years, uh, it was the classic midlife crisis. I thought, okay, what can I do for a big change of pace? So what I decided to do is to take my experience in as a science teacher, take my experience as a organic grower and as an eco-builder and combine it into a PhD research where um, essentially citizen scientists, um, which are really what permaculturists are, eco-designers and citizen scientists can be used to inspire high school students to learn science in a local relevant context. And, um, what better place to do that than as far away from the rest of your life as possible. So essentially packed up, moved over here, um, did my PhD in essentially integrating permaculture into high school science education. Um, really loved the climate over here, loved the people, loved the laid back atmosphere. Um, and while I was, while I was writing my thesis, bought the worst house in New Zealand and renovated it um, into sort of a suburban permaculture renovation. Um, And then from there, bought a small farm and boom, you know, now we're full on into regenerative agriculture.
0: Marvelous. That's quite a story. Now... I know that one of your passions is working with marginal or degraded land, seen as there's sort of a sense of healing and lots of room for regeneration within those ecosystems. Can you tell me some of the main steps that you had to take in order to transform the farm that you bought into the one that is currently working for you now?
1: Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a worn out horse property, which means um, there, were, there were definitely too many horses on the land the, all the soil was compacted, the soils were fairly acidic, um, and, um, steep slopes. if you've ever been to New Zealand or if you've seen pictures of New Zealand, oftentimes the, the, um, the really steep marginal land being grazed. And so the first thing we did was get the horses off the property, get heavy animals off of the property then um, in our paddocks the quickest and easiest thing to do is to add lime which is going to raise the ph which is going to favor biological activity in the soil and bring back more earthworms let the earthworms do the cultivating for us Um, earthworms are more active at a more neutral ph um, get the horses off, raise the pH in the market gardens. Um, you know, a whole different process of decompacting the soil on the slopes. Well, we can talk all about slopes, but it's a combination of, um, planting, planting the slopes up to trees, but then you've got to be careful about how you manage your stock. We fenced off about a half a kilometer of stream, protected the riparian corridor. Um, protected a, a historical wetland, what used to be a wetland. And we've planted about probably 2000 native trees. This would be our permaculture zone five. Um, and because of increased extreme weather events, um, we're really, really, um, working hard on holding the stream banks in place and holding the hillsides in place because once the soil is gone you know it's gone forever
0: yeah that's wild i know that you guys suffered a hundred year storm early after getting the farm tell me about how that impacted the land and how you recovered afterwards
1: yeah um so we 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 got this piece of land which basically even though it was in a bad condition it had potential written all over it. Just so many microclimates, um, relatively close to town. And, um, so we had the vision of, okay, our, our food forest is going to go here. Our market gardens are going to go here. We'll tractor our chooks over here and then down in the valley. Well, we won't worry about that for, for now. And 10 months after we took possession, we had this, um, phenomenal storm. Essentially, if you've been following what's about to happen in North and South Carolina and what happened in Houston last year, this storm stalled over the top of us. It behaved differently than all previous storms. It stalled and it just dumped water and it kept dumping water. Um, and we, we lost one entire hillside in, in, um, down by this, stream, one section of stream, we probably lost three to 40 cubic meters of stream bank in one night. And the next morning we went down to have a look and I was blown away. You know, I knew, you know, I've been studying climate change for 30 years, um, but this was just in your face climate change. Like this this is the future. This is what it looks like. So all of my priorities went from, you know, from market gardening and food forests to um, what I call triage permaculture, you know, just stop the bleeding. And um, with the help of our regional council, which is, which is generous in terms of free advice and subsidized trees and plants, and they've even subsidized the cost of fencing The um, stream uh, streams, we've put in literally thousands of hours and cumulatively tens of thousands of dollars just to, you know, quote unquote, stop the leak. Um, And um, at the same time, to a certain extent, what we do to flood proof our property also helps to drought proof our property.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The importance of protecting those riparian zones can be the difference between, you know, such a major disaster like that, taking a huge amount of the resources and the soil on a site, and possibly even being a net gain. I know that we've done this for some of our clients here in Guatemala. The The rainy season can be quite devastating and very severe. And most of the areas that are surrounded or that are surrounding the water bodies, especially the rivers and the the drainage canals, lose a ton of material during these seasons that all ends up in the lake. However, the places that we've been able to sort of uh, put in check dams Regenerate the areas with deep-rooted crops have actually gained that material in many cases, and have been used as sort of a surplus, either for sand for you know developing paths and other things, but also a ton of soil as well.
1: Yeah, we um, <laughs> um at the exact same time that we fenced our stream, planted two thousand trees the valley above us was clear cut of pine trees so we've actually had, had the exact opposite us like we're getting increased runoff due to the clear felling of the um and so now it's like a race against the clock my you know my all my trees and my grasses, my native grasses and a couple of introduced species i'm rather being broad enough before we get a big storm coming down the stream with all that excess runoff due to the hillsides above us no longer being covered in trees.
0: Yeah, it makes a huge difference and puts the the whole ecosystem at risk, frankly. But now here, let's move on a little bit with uh, dealing with the disasters. And tell me what you focused on afterwards. Because you seem to be very focused towards building and maintaining systems and models which are primarily economically viable, as well as doing good for the uh, for the local ecology and the health of the ecosystem on your farm. Tell me a little bit about how you decide on that criteria, and what and what doesn't make the cut as far as the priorities of the systems that you put in.
1: It's a great it's a great question. I mean, I really see. <clears throat> Permaculture farm development as a dynamic process, you, you start out in one direction and then you might have some failures. You might have some success, you, you change your design, you change it. But in the big picture for farm to be sustainable, it has to be economically and in the world of permaculture. We see all these, you know, all these examples of permaculture properties where somebody drops a million dollars, brings in a bunch of earth-moving equipment, builds a fancy eco then posts it on Facebook, and you know gets a million likes. But that's like most people don't have a million dollars to drop on a permaculture property. So what we're trying to do is is to um, find out what are the what are the agricultural systems for our space and maybe our local economy, our soil type, the um, the microclimates we have? Yeah. So, so, um, you know, for, for farms to be viable, they've got to be sustained, you know, financially sustainable. Um, nobody farms to 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 go bankrupt and. So what we're doing is we're responding to what what's appropriate for our land and the the maybe the markets that are available to us. And um, at the same time, making sure that we're not doing anything that's going to cause further damage. Um, no more slips, no more erosion, or just or at least limiting. So the, the obvious solution to that is to plant more trees. And this is... This is the basis of permaculture. The way I see it is moving more toward a permanent agriculture. And so more perennials and less annuals also move away from a pasture-based grazing system and more toward a fodder-based grazing system. And I'm sure you guys can relate with your goats, um, that, you know, they are really, they're browsers.
0: Right, so any pastured animals here in the highlands and the, the Rocky Mountains just wouldn't find a whole lot of food on their own and you'd have to be importing feed. Quite frankly, where we are, goats are really the only sustainable, um, larger herbivore that I think can can do very well here without some major changes in in either the landscape or the inputs, and I'm sure that's what you found as well, no?
1: Yeah, I mean, if... if... Standing standing on our hillside, we look at the neighboring farms, and you see a couple of things. One, you see a ton of sheep and no trees planted on the hillsides, or you see they they'll rotate um, um, cattle in with the sheep. So basically, you're looking at really steep hillsides, hardly any trees, and either sheep or cows. And you look at what we've done. We experimented with sheep early on, got rid of them. We, we had this image of having a house cow and would love to um, be milking our own cows. So we, we bought a cow and a calf, but after one really wet winter where she was just basically skiing down the hillsides, we decided that that's not the appropriate animal for our land. And so we sold all the sheep, we sold all the cows, And we've really decided that in our uh, mission to plant more trees on the hillsides um, and to protect the riparian corridor, that goats are such a better um, option for us because we can can use – it's basically chop and drop fodder
0: whenever we
1: need it. Um, And so we run half of the farm (coughs) with – with goats and you know there's still going to be a lot of grass around there for grazing but we're just planting more and more trees now when you're planting trees with goats present you need to protect the trees so there's two ways we do that we get uh, three meter poplar poles from the regional council and these are highly subsidized They, they give them out to any farmer and we plant those three-meter poplar poles 70 centimeters in the ground. So on day one, we've got a tree that's 2.3 meters tall. And they also, they'll sell you, but we usually use recycled ones. We go to the dump and get these plastic sleeves that you put over the poplar pole so that the stock won't um, rip the bark off of it. So Yeah, like able-
0: girdling they're really aggressive with. They've done that to a number of our avocado trees already. We've had to take some measures against it as well.
1: Yeah, it's just you know goats are great, but you know it's a goat is is a, a goat is to a tree what a chicken is to your vegetable garden. Um, so um, that's a really appropriate system for us with the the poplar poles to hold the steep hillside, the plastic sleeve to protect it. And then down in the riparian corridor, we've planted um, willows. We've just basically taken willow wands or willow poles, and we've just jammed them into the stream bank. This was a real triage measure. Um, We did it almost immediately after the big uh, storm. Then we've gotten a lot of um, casarina, which is Australian river oak or she-oak which in, in permaculture is known to be a superior windbreak um casuarina is this you know you know really well known windbreak but it's also it's called river oak in australia because its extensive root system will hold the stream banks it's also a superior stock fodder so all along our riparian corridor which is fenced off from stock we're growing these willows and this casuarina and if, if there's ever a drought, a severe drought on our farm, well, where's all the water during a drought? It's down in the stream. And with these trees and their extensive root systems, during a flood, they're holding the stream bank in place. And during a drought, we're cutting the branches and just dropping them over the fence. And that's our emergency stock fodder for the goats.
0: Fantastic. So now I know you also focus a lot on what you would call four-dimensional design, especially turning liabilities into assets. Can you explain what the fourth dimension is in this case and why it's so it's absolutely essential to include in the design process and how the transformation of those liabilities into assets have worked out in your experience?
1: Yeah, um time is the fourth dimension. <clears throat> and I think it's a little bit of a misnomer in, in people just learning about permaculture that, Oh, you know, permaculture is a no maintenance, um, system. Oh, you just, you just establish the system and then it takes care of itself. Um, you know, for one, um, you know, regular human interactions are, are important. To guide the system and maybe to have to inter intervene and, and change parts of the system, um, and the other thing is that unless you have a million dollars, you can't afford to do everything up front. You've got to pick and choose to do things over time. So we we, we run a, a permaculture um, internship on the farm, and probably the thing I say most to our interns is I'm constantly talking about four-dimensional design and about turning liabilities into assets. Um, so here's an example. We um, There's some places where we've got a, a lot of, like let's say our wind breaks are too thick or there's a lot of trees growing or growing around the house and it's holding moisture near the house. So in that case, if the if the if there's too much foliage and vegetation or around you in the orchard for example there's not enough airflow so you need to thin some of those branches or some of those trees in that case th- that's a liability so what we do is we when we cut the branches we carry them out and feed them to the goats well now the goats eat the eat the leaves and they'll Strip some of the bark, they're really happy doing that, then we've got a big pile of branches, and those branches in the wintertime, we can turn them into kindling to start the wood fire, or otherwise we we're building this giant kugel mound because we've got pretty poor um, our soil and mo- for the most part is poorly drained, so we're building. This sort of island where we're just putting branches and branches and branches. Then later on this year, we're going to build a small, um, a small, uh, what's called a dependent dwelling on the farm. And when we do the groundwork for that, we're going to take all the topsoil and put it on top of those branches and our hugel mound. So, and this all takes place over time. <laughs> you know, one one joke I tell my interns is it takes me a month to cut a tree down. Because I only cut one branch a day and I feed it to the goats. And the next day I cut another branch and I feed it to the goats. So, you know, it may take me four weeks to cut that entire tree down, but the goats are getting fresh food every single day. Um, and then, and then you know, once they've eaten all of that, then the branches and twigs have another purpose. And the tree trunk is cut down and that's dried and used for firewood. Everything is staggered and staged, uh, so you've got to have a real clear idea of of the steps of the process. And so, yeah, turning those liabilities into assets over time, working smarter rather than working harder, lets you do things dirt cheap, and your your farm punches above its weight because you know there's no such thing as a liability if if you can. If you see what well, Bill Mollison would say, the problem is the solution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a fantastic illustration of how turning a task into kind of a, a multiple win process rather than just going through the conventional way, doing it quickly and possibly using machinery or other things to do it faster with this extended process that feeds into other aspects of your systems you're accomplishing actually a lot more even if the the main task at hand is taking longer
1: yeah absolutely I'll give you one more quick example um, which feeds into you know once you start talking about a, a holistically designed farm everything connects to everything now in our goal of drought proofing and flood proofing the farm we've put in A small pond very high on the property. It's about 25,000 liters, um, five meters by five meters by one meter deep. And what we did um, is we dug it by hand. That way, we were able to carefully take all of the topsoil off and put it over in our orchard where we wanted the fruit trees to have a little bit better drainage. Then, With the clay underneath, um, not far away, we had, uh, uh, there was a drain along one of our major farm tracks, which was below a pretty steep slope with our 25,000 liter concrete water tank for the house. So we've got this giant water tank on a slope above a drain above a track. Now that's a recipe for disaster. So what I did, um, is I put, I took a hundred mil, um, 10 centimeter wide plastic, um, coil drain, laid that in the bottom of our drain, connected it to a, um, a sump up at the top. So it won't get blocked with a, a sump with a grate over it. Then we backfilled, we brought that clay down. One wheelbarrow at a time, and we and we backfilled the drain, so it was. It's, so we turned the slope just above the drain. We 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 gentle. We we made it a gentler slope, um, and we. So it's still serving as a drain, but there's not as much pressure coming down on that steep slope, so that it, it it's protecting our mm. water tank above. It's protecting our track below. And when you're digging a pond, all the soil inside of the pond is a liability. It has to be moved. Then you find the most appropriate place to put it. So the topsoil, yep, we'll put that in the orchard and the clay will use it to stabilize this other bank. Then that becomes an asset. And if you want interns to really understand four-dimensional design um there's nothing better than digging a pond in that way because it's experiential learning you're really seeing this is the thought that goes behind it and we're moving you know we're moving the soil from one place to another um and we're making both systems more robust so we're getting two or three outcomes from one job
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic illustration. Now, I know that you mentioned that you had a number of different animals on the farm, all for production, I assume. And I'm fascinated by hearing all of the different ways that people in the permaculture community have integrated multiple animals in order to make the best use of all of their products and their byproducts. Could you talk a little bit about the animal systems that you've implemented? Yeah, so
1: we've talked a bit about the goat system. And the goats, for us, the goats are primarily about milk um, because we, you know, we, our family eats lots of dairy and um, you know, we we we'd much rather... uh, producing that milk ourselves and um, and then meat as well you know we we take the most of the billy goats end up in the freezer Um, but they're also doing you know they are a resilient animal because during a drought when all the grass dies off they can happily eat um, the branches of trees so the next real really really Interesting um, system we've got, interesting to uh, some of your listeners, is we integrate kuni kuni pigs into a system, again, a tree based system. <laughs> kuni kuni pigs are, from what I understand, the only breed of pig that can survive purely on good pasture. And we use, initially, we're using the kuni Kunis as lawnmowers because fruit trees, especially when they're getting established, don't like competition from grass. And we don't want to be out there cutting the grass constantly. So on the other half of the farm, so we've got, we're managing one, one half of the valley with the goats and the other half of the valley we're managing with pigs and in both cases, we're planting the hillsides up so In the Kuni Kuni pig system, we've planted the entire hillside to olives because it's a, it's a windy, hot, um, slope and we know olives don't mind those conditions. Um, they'll help to hold the hillside and prevent slips. And then just below that, we've got a bit of a plateau above the stream and it's the only place on the entire property with free draining soil. So this is where we're gonna plant our avocados. And, um, and the, the idea is that the pigs will graze underneath the avocados, keep the grass down, and they'll graze underneath the olives. On another part of the hill, we've planted a bunch of um, drought-hardy New Zealand native trees called Aki Aki. And Aki Aki means forever and ever. It's the hardest hardwood in New Zealand. And traditionally, Maori have used it for um, handles to tools. And so ultimately, we'll be able to be growing all of our own handles for our garden tools. Um, Meanwhile, simultaneously, we're protecting the slopes from from erosion. Uh, I'll tell you a bit of a a heartbreaking story. We've been planting um, tagasaste, growing tagasaste from seed, tree lucerne, to act as a nurse crop for the avocados because avocados are a forest tree. And when they're young, they need to be protected from sunburn and also from frosts. So I fenced off this this, uh, little plateau so the pigs wouldn't go in there. I planted 200 tagasaste that I had raised from seed. Then we went uh, overseas to visit family. And I came back, and a hare had eaten 197 of my 200 tagasaste seedlings, and I was just
0: oh absolutely my gutted.
1: And this is what farming is—it's just heartbreak after heartbreak. The best intentions, and even worse, we had we had covered all of them with hair repellent already. We've got this little recipe where you take eggs and PVA glue and chili powder and blood and bone, and you mix up this absolutely... And then you sprinkle it over the foliage, and it's supposed to deter hares and and rabbits. So we even did that, and still the hares went in and and killed almost all of the tagasaste. Um,
0: Oh, man. Those things can be really aggressive.
1: So it's it's been... (laughs) So now I have to decide, do I want to plant these avocados out without that protection? I'll just have to paint the trunks white, um, or am I going to have to grow up a whole another crop of tagasaste, wait another six or eight months before planting out the olives? And meanwhile, the olives are in pots, and they don't like being in pots because they need really good drainage. And so, I'm up, again, I'm racing against the clock to get this system in place. But ultimately, it'll be an av- avocado, um, olive, and kunikuni pig system managing, you know, that that you know all basically as perennial food crops, um, and protecting this the stream bank and the hillside at the same time.
0: That is fascinating. I really wish I could come and see that system. I have not been able to get to New Zealand since I first started traveling probably back in 2007. And that place really left a mark on me. And I I could just imagine how beautiful all of these uh, symbiotic systems are with it as well. Now, moving aside and more towards the production, more of the economics of these systems. You do a lot of things and have quite a bit of diversity on this farm. Everything from market gardening, you've got stone and pip fruits, you sell plant seedlings, you've got all of those animals which we d- just talked about, and you do restu- restoration work along your riparian zones. How do you balance the diversity with the economic needs of remaining sustainable and Within the business aspect of this enterprise?
1: It's a great question. Now, this is the podcast that I, I heard you guys talking about, and that sort of, you know, motivated me to reach out to you guys because it is, you know, it's all about balancing those things. Now we've got a couple of things going for us. If you start from a place of market gardening, you can get up running really quickly. And um, I've been growing.
0: Sure, just because of the higher turnover crops that you're using in that context? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, even before we took possession of this farm, we took possession in the middle of winter, oh, sorry, late winter. And traditionally in, in New Zealand, garlic is planted on the winter solstice, which for us is June 21st. We didn't take possession of the farm until August 1st. So I got permission from the woman we bought it from to come basically on July 1st and plant a crop of garlic on the land a month before we even took possession and, um, really high quality organic garlic. It's a niche product, which I've been growing for, you know, 15, 20 years and, um, I know that people, you know, foodies will pay good money for it. Um, and so that was a way for us to get up and running straight away. My, my day job, which I stumbled across quite accidentally is I advise people on building and renovating, um, energy efficient homes. And the, the only reason that I've got this job is because. I've, I've renovated a lot of homes to a really high energy efficiency standard. Um, I have no training as a builder or an architect, but we call it eco thrifty renovation. Um, and so I'm lucky to have, to have, um, a really fulfilling job off the farm, which helps us pace ourselves on the farm. But even if you don't, Even if you don't have a job off the farm, um, you still need to pace yourself. And this is what I picked up from the podcast I listened to you guys as well. You've got to, you've, you've got to chip away at it. And you might spend a little bit of time developing an economic enterprise. And then you might pour some of those profits into restoration work. And then go back and put a little bit more effort into um, an economic enterprise. So, you know, we've planted 200, 250 fruit trees, um, but those will take a couple years to get established. Um, and so, meanwhile, we're doing, we're doing the market gardening. Um, and, um, you know, the, I tell people the avocado orchard is my retirement fund, um, because at the moment avocados are, are, you know, they were selling for up to four or $5 a piece here. Um, so I really see that as a, as a very viable income. And if the, if the Kuni Kunis are managing the grass, it's going to be a fairly low input system. Um, but absolute, this is where four dimensional design comes in. Take your time and, and, um find out what systems are suit your land, but also suit you when, when I'm consulting clients, I tell them, you know, we think we talk about, um, energy flows. We, you know, when we're talking about sector analysis, we look at sun angles and wind and water. I tell people the most important energy flow is you, because if you get burnt out or if you if 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 growing that certain crop doesn't suit you, or if your daily pattern doesn't take you through that part of the farm or that part of your suburban section, you know you need to redesign it um, because ultimately, you know the whole section, you know the 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 success or failure of any of any farm or um, small even suburban permaculture property. It's the human beings who are interacting it. So, you need to make the design suit the people along with suiting the climate and the landscape and the local economy as well.
0: Yeah, those are absolutely essential observations. I know that's something that we work really hard on when we design with clients as well, especially those who have a priority towards perennial systems. And, I mean, obviously we always try and move any landscape or land enterprise towards a more perennial system eventually, but you really have to have a plan for how you're going to bring in income until those systems mature, unless you've got like a trust fund or another source of income to rely on in that period, which could be five to seven years, especially in your case with avocados. Um, that's usually way too long of a period of time to not be making at least a, a sustainable income. And so how we work towards you know those high turnover annual, annuals like you talked about in a market garden and slowly start putting in the perennial systems, the long-term systems that quite frankly are a lot easier and more passive to manage once they mature, though they do take quite a bit of effort uh, to get established. I mean, it's different with every single context, and I really like what you mentioned about how the person interacting with the systems more often, be it the designer, the owner, or the primary worker, being the major energy source. And while all those other ones are just as important as you mentioned, if the primary interacting force on that Piece of land is not either interested, motivated, or able to take care of however ideal um, a landscape system it might be. It's going to fall apart, and and I really appreciate you you highlighting that for that reason.
1: Yeah, um, I've <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. I've gotten myself in over my head in the past. For example. You know, I was really keen to do bees, you know, like 15, 16 years ago, back when I had my farm in America. And the first winter, my bees died. And the second winter, I managed to overwinter my bees and they survived. And in the spring, a bear came along and smashed my hives.
0: Oh, no. And
1: now that on our farm in New Zealand, I just have a contractor come in and do the bees for me. Um, I like him a lot. He's got a four wheel drive vehicle, which I don't have. And so, you know, he, he does the bees, he pays us a leasing fee. He gives us honey, his bees pollinate all of our trees. And a couple months ago I needed a hand. Um, I asked him if he could help me move some things around the farm. And he shows up on a Saturday morning with his five-year-old son and, you know, he had, we had to move a pig shelter down into the valley. And then on the way back up, we had a big pile of firewood. We threw it in the back of his truck and we drove back up. And so, you know, to me, permaculture to a certain extent is about mutually beneficial relationships. We're designing for always designing for mutually beneficial relationships. So I see my relationship with my beekeeper as as great he's getting he's getting access to land, which he he doesn't own land, but he owns a business. I need pollination, I need um you know we love to eat honey as well, and he's a nice guy, and he's willing to help me out you know when when I need a hand,
0: yeah, exactly, increasing the connections, especially the beneficial ones, stacking functions like that. there are so many ways to do it that aren't maybe directly linked to the to the land itself, but spill out over into the communities and the connections with people. And, and I agree, that's one of the most fascinating things that are often overlooked when we focus too much just on the, the farming aspect.
1: Yeah, we also, um, along with our permaculture internship, which is eight weeks long, um, we're getting inquiries from all over the world. Um, we're getting interns coming. They get a PDC over the course of eight weeks. And they're living it. They're living four-dimensional design thinking on the farm. We also, we try to run one workshop every month on the farm for the local community. And uh, we're just starting what sort of could be called a forest kindergarten, um, where, you know, these have been around in Europe for 30 years, 40 years where we're building, we're bringing children onto the farm and primarily they go down to zone five and they have unstructured discovery play, which is shown to be best practice early childhood education. But they also come and they, and they can bottle feed the goats or they can see the baby piglets or they can hold a baby duckling. Um, you know, they're more and more and more urban and suburban kids never spend time in nature and never spend time on a farm. So it's really important, both of those things for, for people to understand what it's like to be on a farm and to understand that yes, animals are raised and killed for food. um, And to spend that time discovering nature in a zone five. Um, And that's another way that we're reaching out to the community. And even it's a tiny income stream for us, really, really tiny, but we're building social capital. You know, the social capital we build by opening the farm is so much more valuable than any any financial return we would get.
0: Mm, absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Now, there's one quote that I've heard from you, which I, I would really love to sort of unpack because it's very valuable. And you said we're farming as if our children's lives depend on it. Can you reiterate or, or explain a little bit the urgency and the motivation that drives you to do what you do for the next generation?
1: Yeah, I mean, going back to 1986, where I was in my very first university lecture, and it just scared the shit out of me. And here we are 32 years later, and I've spent my entire adult life, um, as an environmental educator. And I've basically failed, right? I have, I've failed to save the world. Um, and so, um, the best I can do, I think, is to prepare my children's future to be as resilient as possible. And I'm on our farm i'm I tell my interns all the time, I'm in this for the long for the long term, for the long haul. Um, if i'm I'm totally willing to forego short- term farm profits for long term farm resilience and building robust systems. And it takes time to do that. and essentially, I want to set my children up to be, to be on a farm that is extremely resilient and robust, if they choose to be farming. You know, we just look at the news of climate change this, the, in the last six months. Forest fires in Sweden, um, super storms. I, I just saw a headline this morning. There are nine major storms over the world's oceans right now. Um, and so we are, we're drought proofing and flood proofing because if we lose any more soil, farming won't even be, um, viable for my children. Um, and, and so that's why I, yeah, I'm, I'm putting them first and foremost, and it's a win-win because, you know, we'll have a more robust farm long-term and who, when all the other farms around us have been degraded by soil loss um will become you know our, our land quote unquote would become more valuable but more importantly the farmer is going to look over the fence and say hey um i used to make fun of you for doing what you're doing but now actually i want to come and learn from you um and that's when we can get real systemic change happening
0: marvelous yeah I- I definitely agree with that as well. Now, before I let you go, Nelson, could you tell us about how our listeners can get in touch with you and how they can find your educational programs and any other events you may have going on?
1: Cool. Thanks. We've got a website, which is theecoschool.net, and we've got a blog, which is ecothriftylife.com, or it might be ecothriftylife.co.nz. I'm not quite sure. Or we might have both.
0: No worries. I'll put the link to it on the show notes for this, for this episode. So they can go directly to that.
1: And we've got a Facebook page, which is just The Eco School. Um, and we've got, we've got a motto. Um, Act locally, share globally. We share, a, I think we've got 800 blog posts. Um, we don't believe in the commodification of information. We, if we develop a robust system, we want to share it. Um, and we're more than happy to share those things, um, around the internet to everybody. And our, our, our email address is, uh, the eco school at gmail.com.
0: Marvelous. Well, let me just say thank you for the resources that you put out there and so much as well for the feedback and the interaction that you shared via this podcast as well. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I really hope that we can catch up and perhaps do a follow-up episode in the future.
1: Cool. Thank you, Oliver.
0: All right. Take care, Nelson. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge Podcast Facebook page, to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.